The ex-wife of the former president, Ivana Trump, passed away earlier today. The former president shared this on his social media platform. Quote, I'm very saddened to inform all of those that loved her, of which there are many, that Ivana Trump has passed away at her home in New York City. The fire department said they responded to a report of someone suffering cardiac arrest at the home where Ivana Trump died. According to a statement, police found her unresponsive, pronounced her dead at the scene. The New York Police Department says there doesn't appear to be any criminality related to her death. Ivana Trump is the mother, obviously, of the former president's eldest children, Donald Jr., Ivanka, and Eric Trump. The two divorced in 1992 after his affair with Marla Maples, who became the former president's second wife. Ivana Trump was 73 years old. The news continues. We're going to hand over Laura Coates and CNN Tonight. Laura? Thank you, Anderson. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. It'll be three weeks tomorrow since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And ever since, we've seen trigger laws across the country going into effect. We've seen celebration from those who wanted Roe to be overturned. We've also seen protests from those who didn't. It's been triggering. I mean, anti-abortion activists have been accused of being cruel and controlling. Abortion rights activists have been accused of exaggerating the harm of overturning Roe v. Wade. They've even been accused of concocting victims whose stories will pull on the heartstrings of America, including being accused of concocting the story of a 10-year-old girl who was raped and forced to seek an abortion outside of her own state. Because, man, a story like that would really prove the problem of having no exceptions with abortion bans, or really the bans themselves. Well, the truth is, this case gained national attention since President Biden referred to the little girl while discussing abortion rights actions, telling the story of how she had to cross state lines from Ohio to Indiana to have her abortion after becoming impregnated by her rapist at just 10 years old. Because rape victims are ineligible for abortions in Ohio after there's any cardiac activity, which is around six weeks. Well, this little girl, and I will stress, this little girl had to travel because she was six weeks and three days into her pregnancy. Now, many Republicans who supported overturning Roe v. Wade, well, they wanted her story not to exist. The Wall Street Journal editorial board even called it an abortion story too good to confirm. Listen to her own state's attorney general just three days ago casting doubt on this little girl's horrific trauma. We have regular contact with prosecutors and local police and sheriffs, not a whisper anywhere. I know our prosecutors and cops in this state. There's not one of them that wouldn't be turning over every rock in their jurisdiction if they had the slightest hint that this had occurred. Not a whisper anywhere, said A.G. Dave Yost with great certainty. And fellow Ohio Republican Jim Jordan, he joined in. The ranking member on the House Judiciary Committee seized on that and tweeted, another lie? Anyone surprised? Well... They wanted to render her invisible, a figment of your imagination. But the sad truth is she does exist. A 27-year-old undocumented immigrant is under arrest and charged with raping that child, that little girl. And Columbus police say that he has confessed. He has admitted, they say, to raping the 10-year-old little girl and not once on no less than two occasions. He is now charged with felony rape of a minor under the age of 13, a law that's on the books because this can happen. 
And even after an arrest and a reported confession by this suspect, Ohio's top law enforcement officer says he stands by everything he said. And well, when he was asked if he would apologize, he replied, apologize for what? Questioning a newspaper story? That wasn't quite what it was. And that tweet by Congressman Jordan has disappeared. But CNN's Manu Raju was able to track him down for this follow-up question. Why'd you delete the tweet? Well, because we learned that this illegal alien did this heinous crime. Um, so we deleted the tweet. Yeah. Do you apologize for the, to the girl and the family for suggesting it was a lie? The, never doubted the child. Um, I, was, I was responding to a headline from, from, uh, from uh, your profession, the news profession, which happens all the time on, on Twitter. Um, doubted Joe Biden, which is usually a smart thing to do. We were never questioning the child. Hmm. Maybe I didn't hear right. But explain what you said to the child. Something tells me that um, maybe the blame the media or a reference to President Joe Biden and semantics aren't going to do the trick in this case. And speaking of misdirected anger, Indiana's attorney general is now vowing to investigate the doctor who helped this little girl get an abortion. And the state today asked the Supreme Court to hurry up and officially transmit its opinion overturning Roe v. Wade so it can put its strict abortion law into effect. Now, think about this. You, you hear about a child raped multiple times, and your focus is going to be on her doctor, or maybe, as Congressman Jordan seemed to indicate, our immigration laws, which undoubtedly will be the next horizon frontier in this discussion. But the AG in Indiana has called into question whether the OBGYN who performed the procedure properly reported the case. But according to the Indianapolis Star, a public records request revealed the decision actually she did, or he did, they, they did, report the abortion. The sad reality is that her case of sexual assault is hardly an anomaly. That's why exceptions for rape and incest were largely codified across this country. Sadly, it can and will happen again. The question is, will those on the side of abortion rights be able to do anything about it? With the House likely voting tomorrow on a bill to codify abortion rights and with the Senate most likely not to pass it, I mean, what are the other potential avenues? Joining me now, Dr. May Winchester, an OBGYN in Ohio, where they've banned all abortions after a fetal heartbeat is detected unless the mother's life is threatened. She says that she's now forced to call her attorney before terminating a pregnancy and working to save a mother's life. Also with us, Nancy Northup, president and CEO of the Center for Reproductive Rights. Ladies, I'm glad to have both of you with me here today. Um, Dr. Winchester, I have to ask you to sort of react to this case and, and what it's become. There is the obvious horror of a child being sexually assaulted, full stop. Then there's the second horror, really, of a story like that being doubted and treated as if it was a political pawn. What is your reaction to that? You know, I care for many patients with many stories that have brought them to me when they needed an abortion, and all of them are valid. But as someone who provides comprehensive reproductive health care, that means that sometimes I do care for very young people who need an abortion and who have often suffered from traumatic, devastating abuse. Uh, 
And the story coming out of Ohio, my hometown, is not an isolated event. It is not new, and it's certainly not one of a kind um, by any means. These bans on abortion that limit access hurt everybody, but especially those who need it the most. Nancy, when you hear that, the idea of it not being an anomaly, the idea of it happening, I mean, one of the reasons we have laws like this on the book that are so specific to sexual assaults of minors is because we know as a society, whether we want to admit it or not, that it can happen. And yet when we have the conversations, Nancy, surrounding the agency and autonomy over a body, we often think about a woman's body, but it's more expansive. It's about a little girl's body. It's about those who may find themselves with little recourse. And in in states like this, possibly none. What is your reaction to this real possibility? Has it been dismissed by too many at this point? So here we are. It is just short of three weeks since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. And, you know, this is one story coming to the fore, and there are so many others. I mean, this girl was a victim of a crime, and yet she and her mom were made to feel that they were criminals because they had to leave their state of Ohio because abortion has been banned after six weeks. And of course, she went to Indiana, where they are looking to have a special session so that they can also put in a ban on abortion. And it is just unconscionable. This is fundamental health care. It is protected. It should be as such. And the story of this little girl being made to have to flee her state is why we do need to have nationwide protection. It is important that tomorrow the House will be voting on the Women's Health Protection Act and also on the right to travel, to go to another state where abortion is legal. You know, Dr. Winchester, on this note, I mean, we think about this is obviously a a very controversial subject matter. I mean, the idea of abortion rights versus those who don't support it. It's no you know, secret that this has been a topic of discussion of intense debate for a very long time. But one thing that might surprise people is that you as a doctor, before you are tasked with dis- deciding how you're going to perform maybe life-saving treatment in consultation with a patient, maybe having a medical emergency, you're thinking about litigation. You're thinking about not just your Hippocratic oath. You're thinking about having to contact an attorney. What has this done to you in terms of your ability to practice without the constraints of of politics or the threat of litigation? You know, it's been really unnerving. And, you know, a recent patient has allowed me to share her story. And she unfortunately broke her water at 19 weeks and really wanted to keep the pregnancy going despite risks to both her and the fetus. And one of the main risks is an infection, um, and it can develop very quickly and can become severe very quickly, and that's exactly what happened. And the medical treatment for this, the standard of care for this, is an abortion, and the patient chose an abortion to save her life. But, you know, three weeks ago, I would have, you know, we've done, this is medical care. We do this not infrequently because this happens more, more commonly than people might imagine. Um, But the new thing is, how am I going to protect my patient legally? How am I going to protect myself? Because I'm not a a lawyer. I have 
not been able to understand that 20-page bill like my lawyers have. So my first call has to be to my lawyer to make sure that I'm protecting the patient as best as I can. Nancy, when you hear that, I mean, what goes through your mind about the idea that this is one of the thoughts in terms of the provision of medical care, even in a medical emergency? This has got to be the next horizon for doctors all across this country. Yes. I mean, at the Center for Reproductive Rights, we've been providing legal advice and support to doctors and abortion providers for our 30 years. And we've now entered this very frightening situation and circumstance. No one should have to be practicing medicine with their lawyer on the phone uh, to make sure that what they can do is, is legal in the state. And so I think that's one of the things that people don't think about when they think about bans on abortion is that it puts every single pregnancy complication in a very, very difficult realm. And we're gonna be seeing that with people who are miscarrying and not being able to get the medical care that they deserve because of these draconian bans on abortion in states. It is really imperative that everybody who supports the fundamental right to make these decisions for oneself makes their support known because we're at a critical period right now. And ladies, thank you for joining. This is not a hypothetical. I mean, you're experiencing this, Dr. Winchester. In Texas, they're now suing the Biden administration, I should note, for the guidance that they've given to hospitals that they have to allow abortions in emergency circumstances for the life of, and the health of a woman if it's at risk. This is on the, not only on the horizon, it's here right now. Dr. May Winchester, Nancy Northrup, thank you for your time. We're about to dive deeper into, the, into how the politics surrounding the 10-year-old little girl's case got so twisted. And yes, I will keep saying 10-year-old little girl's case, just to remind you where we are right now and the role that the right-wing media played in, and frankly, sowing so much doubt. Next. So this began, and frankly, it still is, a horrific story in a local paper about a 10-year-old little girl who had to cross state lines to get an abortion, a story that was cited by the President of the United States, and, well, it soon turned into this. My administration, speaking of lying, just repeat a story about a 10-year-old child who got pregnant and then got an abortion or was not allowed to get an abortion when it turns out the story was not true. Well, it turns out it actually is true, right? The right-wing media jumping on the story to suggest that it was somehow a hoax. And the Wall Street editorial board called it, quote, an abortion story too good to confirm. That's not a thing, by the way. That is until a suspect was arrested on Tuesday. And as you can see, the Wall Street Journal had to add an editor's note to its unfortunate piece. It also filed a new editorial to, quote, correct the record after a man confessed to the crime. Now, the about face is as astounding as it is awful. And what's worse, figures like Fox's Jesse Waters, who piled on the suspicion, now want to take credit for the suspect's arrest. You would think the story of a sexual abuser roaming free assaulting 10-year-olds would raise quite a few concerns in small-town Ohio. But no one seems to be doing anything about it. No one even knows anything about it. Primetime covered this story heavily on Monday, put on the pressure, and now we're glad that justice is being served. 
Oh, okay. Sure. Joining me now is Ashley Allison, Jonah Goldberg, and Alice Stewart. Glad you're all here. Just to clear up the record, they were not waiting on him to actually announce this on Monday. We've known about the story for quite some time, but to take credit for it really shows me something very different. I mean, the fact that this was a story nobody wants to be true. No one wants it to be true that a 10-year-old has been raped repeatedly, let alone got pregnant and had to have an abortion. But why politically, why in terms of the media landscape, why was this such a story that just could not be true? Was it because it posed too much of a threat to the idea of not having the exceptions? I think what's disturbing is we heard a lot this week of the same Republicans and conservatives that use false claims of election fraud to now push false claims of abortion fraud. And that should not happen. The story here, as you said, is a tragic story of a 10-year-old girl who is raped by an undocumented man. He, he fortunately has been arrested and will face justice for his crimes. And what we need to look at this is, this is an anecdote about how we navigate the post-Roe world. What do we do moving forward? Me, as a, a pro-life advocate, I believe that we should support life, the sanctity of life. I think there should be exceptions in the case of rape, incest, and life of the mother. And how would that affect a case like this? How will this affect the next case? Because unfortunately, there will be another one. And in this case, states are going to dictate the laws. And in this case, this girl, if she had reported this sooner, she could have uh, opted for emergency contraceptives in this case. Unfortunately, it was reported and got to the authorities too late for that. But there are other alternatives. And what we need to do in this post-Roe world is navigate and educate people. What do we do next time this comes up? Early reporting, believing these girls and making sure they get the, po- the, the, the best uh, pre-birth care they can. And in my case, I would advocate for supporting life and encouraging women how they can go about getting the the financial treatment and the medical treatment they need to choose life instead of abortion. Well, one thing thing about that six weeks, I mean, they talk about grown women not necessarily knowing they're pregnant before a certain period of time. I mean, a 10-year-old not knowing that they're pregnant to be able to report, that's probably where you're going with this thought. Yeah, she's 10. There are women in their 50s who have been raped and who have never told their story let alone a 10-year-old, and you want her to have the courage in six weeks to be educated enough? I don't want to have to educate a 10-year-old about rape and what happens if you're raped. That shouldn't be the life that they have to live. And the thing that, the reason why these Republicans didn't believe her is because they know they are wrong. When we talk about abortion rights, people who do this, they said there are cases, every case is unique, But cases like this will come up and they call us the woke left. They call us these radicals. No, we're people who deal with folks every single day and know the lived experience of what it's like to have to decide whether or not you're going to terminate an abortion or not. And they got caught in their lives and they got caught in trying to take autonomy out of a woman's right to choose and especially a little girl. And so they tried to dismiss her. They tried to erase her. And that's what Republicans who don't believe in the, the what actually happened in the election, Republicans who don't want a woman rights, uh, right to choose, they want us to be erased. And that's unacceptable. And they got caught in their lies and they should be shamed. Jonah, you can't be quiet during this. I know you... I'm trying. <laughs> I, I, so I, I want you to break. I come in here. I know we invite yes. everyone to talk. I want you let to me, weigh in as well. Let me, let, me, let me take the safest course and disagree with you. Um, is that it, the safest word? Uh, wow, that's no, you're breaking you're, news. You're the farthest away. Okay, okay, fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, there's, look, I, I agree with your, your slams on Jesse Waters and on Tucker. What they're doing is irresponsible and grotesque. And um, But you said something about the Wall Street Journal where they said uh, their about face was as astounding and outrageous or something like that. Mm-hmm. 
I think their about face was the exact right thing to do. They apologized. They corrected the record. They said we were wrong. And that's not what Tucker and, and, and Jesse are doing. And we should be clear about this. There, there were legitimate reasons to say that, that the story wasn't nailed down. I mean, Glenn Kessner's piece was utterly reasonable to me. Um, I stayed out of it entirely because I am sick of what it, social media encourages, this race to be wrong first where people run with stories that you you should wait for the second shoe to drop on them. And it happens all the time. And sometimes those stories are going to be beneficial to the left, and sometimes they're going to be beneficial to the right when they go the wrong way. There are going to be bad stories for the pro-choice side in the next few years. There are going to be bad stories for the pro-life side. Probably more bad stories for the pro-life side, given the way things are going. But um, to, to sort of say that being skeptical about a story. I understand what they meant. I thought it was a terrible headline, but I understand what they meant when they say too good to confirm. What they're meaning is that it, it does lend incredible moral power to the pro-choice argument. This is such a horrible story. And um, there are going to be more of those kinds of stories. And one you of the- and I have actually talked about this idea of the moral power. And if you could just flesh it out, because I think I understood you to mean in that notion of sort of the, the moral shaming aspect, or moral bullying, I think was the phrase uh-huh. you've used in the past with me, is the idea, not against me, but the phrase we've talked about together, has been the idea of if somebody brings up a story like this that is so heart-wrenching, that is so awful, that it shuts down the other side's ability to respond, because what are you going to say aside from... I'm wrong. It didn't right. happen. Yeah, I mean, didn't happen. No, no one is going to want to be maneuvered into the, well, I'm in favor of the horrible rape of a 10-year-old girl position. No one wants to seem like it, which is why, like, Jim Jordan, just man up and say, hey, look, I got out over my skis. I screwed up. I let my biases get the best of me. I thought the biased media was pulling one over on me. I was wrong. People are going to be wrong. Mm. It's going to be an ugly fight for the next five years as people figure out how to deal with this stuff. And... And so, like, that's why I, 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 hate, I hate the whole story. Well, and, wow. and not, not to mention, not only acknowledge that you were wrong and apologize and set the record straight, but don't go the other extreme and say, oh, this is because of Biden's open border policies letting undocumented people in this country. That's not the answer either. That's that answer, actually might be where they go next. And they're there. Well, you know, we're, we're here. We're coming right back. Ashley, Jonah, Alice, thank you so much. Listen, first on CNN, new developments in the January 6th investigation. Did Cassidy Hutchinson's version of a key moment just get confirmed? What a police officer from the January 6th presidential motorcade is now saying. A select committee member joins me live next. A ton of January 6th headlines tonight. The Secret Service allegedly erased text messages from January 5th and January 6th. That's according to the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General. The messages were erased after DHS investigators asked for them. And first on CNN, a D.C. report, D.C. police officer testified before the committee backing up details of Donald Trump's heated exchange with his security detail on January 6th when he was told he could not go to the Capitol after the rally. Plus, there's new reporting the committee is discussing talking with both the former vice president and the former president. Get some answers straight away from a member of the House Select Committee on January 6th. Congressman Pete Aguilar, welcome to the program. A a lot has happened in the last few hours, frankly, since we heard from the last um, hearing. And I'm wondering, first, what is your take on the idea that there are deleted Secret Service text messages? That's that's pretty stunning if they came, if they were taken away after they were asked for. What does that tell you? 
Well, I read the letter that uh, was sent to uh, the Homeland Security Committee. Uh, Chairman Benny Thompson chairs that committee, obviously, uh, and I trust that uh, that he will uh, work through that and, and seek answers to additional questions uh, that he has. But I think the committee has proven time and time again that we're going to follow the facts and we're going to make sure that if it's relevant to the investigation of January 5th and 6th, uh, we're going to ask these questions. And so I think that uh, that people should expect us to do just that. I mean, at first blush, I mean, and going into it in detail, I mean, how many texts are we talking about? Is it from a, a wide swath of people? Are they relevant that is thought to be? Do we have any information about what and who deleted? I'm not going to get into the evidence that the committee uh, may have in its possession, uh, but what I can say is that uh, you know congressional uh, committees uh, have looked at this. Obviously, that letter was sent to uh, Chairman Thompson uh, in his capacity in Homeland Security Committee. Um, but if it's relevant to the work of our committee, uh, we're gonna we're gonna find the facts, we're gonna chase these, uh, and and we're gonna make sure that we do everything we can uh, to seek the truth. It'll be important to follow that thread into that vein. I mean, I wonder, I mean, we're talking about this motorcade incident that was a very big part of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. Quite riveting to hear about the, how it was relayed to her at the White House about what transpired in the car. Um, what can you tell us about the testimony of a D.C. police officer that seems to corroborate what she said? The committee uh, has said uh, since... Cassidy Hutchinson came forward, uh, that we stand by her account uh, of what happened. Uh, nothing we have heard, I'm not going to get into specific witnesses, but nothing we have heard contradicts uh, that. Uh, nothing we've heard contradicts the testimony that she gave under oath. And we continue to stand by uh, her recollection uh, of events uh, for that day. Did you inquire in greater detail for people to try to corroborate? I mean, there was a lot made about right after that testimony, later that evening, I recall, the next day, people were picking up on the idea and suggesting that there was something not credible about what she said and trying to undermine it. Did the committee then seek out further ways to corroborate or had that been done prior to her testimony? All I'm going to say is that no one has come forward to contradict uh, what she has told us under oath. If people want to come forward uh, and have uh, different recollections, uh, we would encourage them uh, to come forward and give testimony under oath. Uh, that's very different than putting out anonymous statements uh, that we have seen uh, before. So, so that's uh, the committee feels strongly uh, about this. We all stand behind Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, and we hope additional witnesses uh, and individuals who have relevant testimony uh, come forward and share uh, with the committee what they know. One would hope. I mean, as a former prosecutor, I certainly understand the idea of people not being able to hide behind anonymity and the value of testifying under oath for credibility, for transparency, for people to really better understand it. But speaking of coming forward, I mean, we've heard from a number of witnesses. The committee interviewed, I think, over a thousand. I'm, I'm hearing about that number as an as a estimate. But how seriously is the committee about um, interviewing Donald Trump or Vice President Mike Pence? What we've said is that our investigation continues. Uh, we're going to follow the facts. We're going to make sure that we do everything we can uh, to ask the relevant questions. Um, uh, we plan to have, you know, an additional hearing uh, that we have that we've talked openly about uh, next week. Uh, that will piece together the next uh, piece of the puzzle. Uh, we feel that we have done a good job in in conveying the information about what happened and connecting these dots and uh, chasing the facts about what happened on January 6th and the run-up to that 
uh, this most recent hearing talking about the violent extremists and the role that they played uh, in the lead up to that event and how the president's tweet on December 19th wasn't just a call to action but a call to arms as my colleague uh, Stephanie Murphy uh, said in the hearing. And so we're going to do just that. Um, but uh, there, if there are new details uh, and things to announce, uh, the chairman will announce those uh, at the appropriate time. How close do you think you are to the finish line of these hearings? Well, we've understood uh, from the minute that we took this assignment that this was going to be complicated, uh, this was going to be uh, big, uh, and this was going to be important to protect our democracy. And so we're not guided by a clock or uh, a congressional calendar. Um, what we're doing is chasing the facts and trying to do our level best to protect our democracy here and to tell this full and complete story. Uh, and so uh, we're going to take that as, as far as it can. Uh, ultimately, uh, we will produce a report uh, of our findings. Um, but in in the meantime, uh, we're going to continue uh, to do the work uh, that the American people expect. As they often say, what a marathon, not a sprint, it seems. Representative Pete Aguilar, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We're going to take what we just heard from the congressman amid these new developments to our political and legal insiders next. Chairman Benny Thompson saying today that he hopes next week's primetime hearing will be the last for the January 6th House Select Committee. Yet he is still leaving open the possibility for more later this summer. We call that a hedge, everyone. But if this is it, do we know enough? And does the DOJ know enough for its purposes? Miles Taylor was chief of staff for the department that oversees the Secret Service. And while Jonah Goldberg, Goldberg can discuss the politics, Elliot Williams brings experience from the DOJ to the conversation as well. I didn't mean to have that weird intro. But, and while you can discuss things, Jonah, like, it came off a little odd. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> you, Thank you, you so, so much. Yeah. 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 While you can talk about anything, talk about that. You might come in handy in this conversation. Let's, let's talk about Secret Service, everyone, today. Because um, deleted text messages... I mean, after there's a request for you to hold on to them, something smells a little fishy to me. How about you? Well, Elliot and I both worked at DHS, and I'd be interested in what he has yeah. to say on this front. Look, I, I love the Secret Service. I love the agents. I, when I was on Capitol Hill, I was on both committees that oversee the Secret Service. Same when I was at Department of Homeland Security. Immense respect. My bigger concern than the deleted text messages, because we, we don't know the full story yet, and the Secret Service spokesman is opposing it, my bigger concern, though, is the cultural issue there. Mm. As Elliot knows, Secret Service agents are going to be put in a very, very difficult conflict, and they already are with this investigation. And that is, they feel an obligation to the president that is to take a bullet for that person. Mm. When you drill into someone's head in training at the Raleigh Training Center, where the Secret Service trains outside of Washington, D.C., that they're going to take a bullet for someone, when it comes to an issue like maybe deleting the text message that's incriminating, maybe not. I worry that there will be many more issues like that where we might not get the full story. And we're already seeing the difficult position Donald Trump put people like Ornato in by naming him White House Deputy Chief of Staff while he's a career civil servant in the Secret Service. That creates conflicts. It was something we were worried about during the Trump administration is these careers he brought close to them uh, but especially the, the Secret Service, it creates this conflict of interest that I don't know if the committee will get to the bottom of, but they need to probe. Wait, the way you um, prefaced it, though, it made me kind of say, well, gosh, do, 
do we want to change that culture if the job actually is to take the bullet? I mean, is, is that what we want to change? The idea of being much more forthcoming and exposing certain aspects? I mean, there is an element of secrecy that is required for that level of responsibility. Yeah, it's just, you know, but to, to, to back this up, it's sort of, and even going back to the years when I was there, this is about a decade ago at this point, uh, you know, the Department of Homeland Security is sort of beset by these kinds of problems. And this is not the first time you've had sort of ethical lapses at the Secret Service. You hear the rumors of wheels up, rings off, uh, and the sort of misbehavior uh, that folks would engage in when going on trips. And so, it, you know, it, it's problematic on that level. To me, sort of from a, from a prosecutorial standpoint or just investigating it, the fact that they'd been requested by the committee and law enforcement, and that's when they disappeared. Now, in the statement, it had seemed that there was a, de- a device replacement program. So perhaps it was switching out phones and somehow magically text messages got deleted. I don't know. But something seems incredibly suspicious about it. The committee is right to look into it and get to the bottom of it. I, I want to say, just to be really, really clear on this, there's the conflict each of these agents face personally. Right. But also, to footstomp Elliot's point, this is a very broken agency. I left DHS feeling like the agency itself had enormous cultural issues, staffing issues. The agents committed to their jobs, but it's a broken agency that has created now this moral conflict that agents aren't equipped to resolve on their own, nor should they necessarily. Mm, uh, I agree. It's been a messed up agency for a long time. I've met a lot of Secret Service agents. They were almost all miserable (laughs) about the job. I had a problem when Bill Clinton's lawyers argued that there was basically a protective function privilege that excluded sworn law officers from having to testify about evidence in crimes. And I get the argument that they need to have a certain amount of like, I got your back, everything, you know, what happens when we're around stays, you know, secret kind of thing. But we're not... We're not even talking about an affair, right? We're talking about... That was the flight, the wheels up, rings off, which is, which is probably a, a show in the making as it is. <laughs> yeah, so that, that means turn off my phone as far as I'm concerned. Um, rings off. Good job. Uh, oh, but, look at that. Uh, um, the, the, we're talking about potentially an attempt to steal an election, uh, sort of an auto coup, um, about fomenting a mob, or do you want to call it or an insurrection, or just a riot... And the idea that Secret Service agents should put their loyalty to a past president above telling the truth and upholding their oaths as law officers um, or sworn officers, whatever the right term is, just strikes me as a non-starter. It does. And, and it's different than, say, it almost sounds like people are talking about a privilege. I like, was going to say You know, too. look at the lawyers in that. Ah, yeah, they say. Yeah. The idea of, of a privilege notion here of like, look, I need to have these, these candid conversations with my advisors. That, to me, is different than the person whose job it is to make sure there's not a threat to the president of the United States of America. But how about this motorcade incident, though? I mean, we are also hearing tonight about D.C. police officer who is corroborating that what she said was actually right and, and actually happened. Does that fall on the same line with the ideas of speak no evil, sort of the, the fight club mentality? You know, look, at the end of the day, you know, and this this is to the privilege point, we actually want these privileges to exist. I want my president to be able to speak right. to his senior aides in, in sort of comfort and secrecy and be able to, to do the business of government. You want Secret Service agents to keep their mouths shut about what they see with the president unless there's wrongdoing and, and criminality happening. Criminality. Right, that's what I mean. No, wrongdoing uh, is in the eye of the whole Right, like, no, but... Crimes are but, crimes. But, <laughs> you know, or serious ethical lapses that weigh on this person's fitness to be president of the United States, which may not be criminal, but you know, perhaps the public should know about. Yeah. I would say politically, though, if, if, the, if the 
Capitol Police story about corroborating the, the uh, altercation yeah. is true. And if the hard version, the, the worst version of this deleted text thing is true, the Secret Service needs to basically be disbanded and oh, rebuilt wow. from scratch. If both mm-hmm. those stories are true, the political consequences of that are enormous. It means a lot of people have been lying to the committee. It means a lot of these Secret Service agents knew about things and covered it up. And it would be a huge deal. Well, easier said than done. And we have to protect the president of the United States and everyone who is protected by Secret Service agents. Miles, Jonah and Elliot, thank you so much. Listen, coming up, we'll look back at the life of Ivana Trump. Her years with Donald Trump, their tabloid headline divorce and her legacy. A Trump biographer will join me next. Ivana Trump was a glamorous businesswoman. She was best known for her high-profile marriage to the man she called the Donald. The pair had three children together, Don Jr., Eric, and Ivanka. This afternoon, Ivana was found dead in her New York City apartment at the age of 73. The cause of death has not been determined, but police say there does not appear to be any criminality involved. Joining me now is Trump biographer Michael D'Antonio. Michael, it's so good to see you. You have some insight, of course, into what Ivana Trump's life was like. You've written the book on Donald Trump, The Donald. What, what do you know about um, Ivana Trump, the, the woman, the mother, the wife of Donald Trump? Well, I think one thing we have to all recognize is that this is a very creative woman. Not only did she come up with that nickname, The Donald, which stuck, but mm-hmm. she raised these three, three children all on her own. At, in the various businesses, she was the creative force behind the interior spaces. So whether it was uh, a casino in Atlantic City or a hotel in New York or anywhere else in the world, she, her hand was there, her creative hand. So uh, you've got to give her propers for that. And um, the former president seemed to appreciate that aspect of her. I mean, she even offered her, while he was the president of the United States, an opportunity to be an ambassador to her home country. Listen to what she had to say about this. I like my freedom. Okay. Why would I go and say bye-bye to Miami in the winter, bye-bye to Saint-Tropez in the summer, and bye-bye to spring and fall in New York? I have a perfect life. A spicy personality shown right there, right? You gotta love it. I mean, and she's got her own perspective on everything, and that included her marriage. She was famous for having her own sources in the tabloids, her sources of publicity. So if something came up and Donald was going to the Daily News saying one thing, well, Ivana went to the New York Post to say another. So she was really spunky. One of my favorite stories is that early in their relationship, uh, Donald Trump took Ivana to dinner uh, with his family. And the elder Trump, uh, Fred Trump, said, everyone will have the steak. And Ivana spoke up and said, I'll have the fish. So you (laughs) got to give her credit for that. This is a woman who is making a statement right there that she was not going to be pushed around. Well, you know, and I always sort of cringe when I hear about the life of a human being only in relation to who they married and who was their spouse. And I know that she stands in her own right. And one of the reasons she was so well regarded for that very notion, I mean, you describe her life as the American dream. Tell us why. 
Well, it it sure was. I mean, this is a woman who immigrated to the United States at a tender age. Uh, she spent time in Canada first. She did very well there. She came here. She learned everything that was necessary to rise in society very quickly, really by her own wits and by her talent and by her drive, she succeeded. Now, there's nothing more American than that. It's certainly actually more of our myth, our American myth of what it means to be an American striver, to be Ivana than to be Donald, who was born with the silver spoon in his mouth. You know, this is a great story of a woman who succeeded at a level that she couldn't even have imagined. You know, mm -hmm. one thing you've got to remember is she grew up living in a Soviet-era factory house in a small city where the big game in town was the Beta Shoe Factory. Mm. So to wow. go from that humble beginning to where she ended up, it's amazing. Pretty astounding, the way you describe it. And obviously also a great skier, we're told as well from her background. Michael D'Antonio, thank you so much. Everyone, we'll be right back. Great to see you. Hey, thanks for watching. Everyone, I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.